welcome to the agile podcast and i'm your host shailendra malik hello and welcome to the new episode for agility exchange podcast i have with me satish um he is the ceo of kratos innovation labs and uh, he is there as one of the uh, blockchain pioneers uh, who started with this startup 4 years back uh, congratulations to satish for completing 4 years and the startup is growing even size and and opportunities and the products that they are creating and uh, today we are bringing you one of the best minds at work in the blockchain space who is actually building solutions and putting them into the uh, hands of people who can use it judiciously as well as solve the important problems that different segments of industries are facing today so welcome satish and welcome thank to you shell thanks for having me on this edition so satish uh, let's discuss about your journey how it started how you ended up um, um, with with kratos uh, the whole story behind starting kratos and your life before kratos as well before we jump into um, the journey of um, how kratos came about and then what kind of solutions you started building and how the ecosystem evolved with time t-shirt thanks shell in fact uh, blockchain actually ha- happened by accident there's a reason why i make this statement i used to work for a subsidiary of rio tinto which is the second largest mining company in the world and they compete with bhp bilton so i had a chance to build a center of excellence for them operated a couple of years and then transfer back to essential before i moved out so first thing i did after i came out of rio tinto uh, in fact a subsidiary of rio tinto is to go to block 71 judiciously on a everyday basis again for the viewers so block 71 in singapore is actually called the startup hub we got uh, carousel and couple of other startups that came out for about 2 to 3 weeks all i used to do is sit there grab a coffee and look at the crowds and the people tell you know it's pretty funny you know why you did it for for 2 to 3 weeks because i literally had no idea when coming from a banking and then mining division right so what are the next so one of the sessions where i was you know just sipping coffee looking at the crowd you'll see all these startups you know walking in flip flops you know and, and then the shorts making sure that you know, they are building some of the best technologies out there in block 71 i heard about this bitcoin so at least in April 2016 that I'm talking bitcoin is only about less than $400 and ethereum was probably $8 or $9 when really got to know about cryptocurrency and we just started uh, looking at the, I started asking people you know what is bitcoin what is this blockchain technology i can tell you that i used to get at least 10 to 12 different definitions of what is a blockchain and even today a lot of people think blockchain is only bitcoin which is definitely a good use case of using technology uh, bitcoin you know again we are talking on a historic note just couple of days before we had this bitcoin getting halt uh, and uh, you know each miner would normally get 6.25 bdc but coming back to how it all started so the problem i really want to understand is that what is bit, what is blockchain i didn't have an answer so that's when it happened that mit came out with this uh, fintech curriculum and signed up for that and i made sure i go to block 71 every day now at least attend the online sessions and look at the crowd and then 
what came out after the three months online sessions with a couple of best MIT professors was that Bitcoin itself is not an end of blockchain technology that could be utilized for at least 100 use cases to, to, to start off. So we chose not the cryptocurrency part. That's when Kratos came into us. I, I had to choose between a Greek name or a Sanskrit name, and I chose the earlier one, Kratos. Again, for the viewers, Kratos means the god of strength. And mythologically, Kratos also is the sibling of Nike, so your Nike shoes. And his sister is actually Victoria, the beautiful lady. So there are a lot of stuff for that. In itself, Kratos itself signifies that you have a lot of strength and valor. So we chose that. That's probably one reason why we are four years. Nothing superstitious about it, but just make sure that the people are able to retain our brand. We have people, our customers calling in even after nine months of year and saying, hello, are you Kratos? I said, no, I'm not Kratos, but I'm from Kratos Innovation Labs. I'd like to. That's how it all started. I thought that's interesting how we got into, blo into uh, blockchain, uh, how we got into supply chain as well as into trade finance. We will talk about more of it, but I thought uh, I want to give the background how this happened. That's a fascinating story because um, many times people only recognize the startups that they uh, that they have heard and, and um, the founders as well as the team, but not many people know the story behind the startup coming along. So, so thanks for sharing that particular interesting piece with us. So, um, yes, during that during that fintech course that you were doing, um, I understand that there were a lot of ideas that came along and you had to do a certain capstone project as well um, to, to see what how much you have learned and what is the takeaway for you from the course. So uh, from where uh, from that particular experimental mode, how did you choose your first use case and what was the driver behind that use case uh, which ultimately took the shape and form of Kratos um, in the future? So that's an interesting question. As rightly said, Capstone, we, used to, we had to work with multiple groups the initial couple of weeks. Towards the last five weeks, we had to either choose alone or go with the group. So I chose an infrastructure project. Uh, again, for the main reason that blockchain was fairly new. It's very tough for people to understand why we have to go this route. Again, you could choose between, we could choose between infrastructure, marketplace, capital markets. So I, chose, I went to infrastructure. But instantly what happened during that case, and again, this, this is the problem there from probably some couple of decades in the banking system, especially in trade finance. I want to touch base upon that for a minute. So in Qingdao, which is again, seventh largest port in China, there was this particular scam that happened and a couple of multinational banks had very big exposure uh, for this particular scam. So what is to happen is, is that you'll have a trader that will have that will claim that you would have, uh, for example, copper mine or copper ore or so let's say worth $10 million as a collateral in one of the warehouses. Today, what happens, even not today, even you know, from centuries together, before trade finance started and you have letter of credit and uh, other things coming in, or bill discounting. So if I had some collateral, I could literally use this collateral and then start you know, getting new loans. So in this case, what happened is you would have a warehouse receipt that can be pledged or used as a collateral to raise loan. So these fraudsters, what happened is they would normally go to a local bank, let's say ICBC Bank, uh, Bank of China, 
within China, so where they have their great reports or their you know, reports about that particular supplier mm -hmm. or the exporter, they would get the first loan. Let's say they get a 1 million loan out of a 10 million collateral, which is possible because banks do loan up to 60% of 70% of the collateral value. Mm -hmm. uh, the modus operandi was they would take a million first from the local banks, then start targeting the multinational banks. So you go to multinational bank two, three, four, and then start using the same collateral and then start raising it. So the statistically so they, what happens is that- So practically you're saying they ahead. use the same collateral at multiple banks right. and they leveraged it more than once. Exactly. That's exactly what we call as a documentary fraud. And the reason why that happened uh, in China or probably uh, in Malaysia, India, and this Southeast Asian countries is that most of the warehouses are not connected to the LMC, London Metal Exchange, mm -hmm. LME. What it means is that if you are connected to an LME, you would know that if there is a collateral inside this warehouse, you can publicly go and verify. Mm -hmm. That if you say I have got, let's say 10 tons of ore, I know that it's, it's under a, a London Metal Exchange certified warehouse, I can go and cross it and that I could use that if it's already been collateralized, I wouldn't be able to raise anything. But what happens in Qingdao is 90% of the warehouses are not London Metal Exchange connected, mm -hmm. which means if you knew them, the, the warehouse manager or warehouse owner, you could always get an original warehouse receipt, receipt multiple times. Mm -hmm. Because the banks only need a original receipt as a collateral. So that it was possible in Qingdao, you would get at least 10 receipts all are original that are pledged with uh, you know, multiple banks. So at some point after what happened was that the collateral itself was not worth the loans that were taken by these fraudsters and they disappeared. Mm -hmm. There's a very big uh, UK based multinational company, a multinational bank that had an exposure of close to 200 plus million dollars. Wow. And that again was had to be you know, picked up by the regulators, became a big issue. But then if you look at the root cause, how these fraudsters take the loophole today, look at trade finance that goes back to 250 years or more than 300 years, when the first build is gonna happen in Venice. What happens in the current context today is that the banks do not itself share information on, a, on its central network. Reason being that the competition is so high that if, if the bank B knows about the financing terms of bank A, they can outbid them and then get a customer out of it. Mm -hmm. Let's say NOL in, in Singapore or we have biggest freights uh, available there. Uh, they may be working with particular bank that are probably discounting worth $500 million in a year, I'd say 1.5% uh, financing uh, terms. If the bank B knows about that and they want to cut short at 1.2%, which means the bank A would lose that business. Okay. Although there is a fraud issue, but the, the profit itself actually far outweighs the fraud that happens. Mm -hmm. So a lot of bankers I had meetings for a coffee. What happens is that most trade finance departments in across the banks, they do write off certain percentage in fraud, which isn't known. Mm -hmm. But again, they can't do much about it because they don't want to share other information on a central network. So the reason why I say I'm central network is you have a credit bureau reports uh, systems or you have other people coming in. Now the trust factor, whether the information is actually secure on a centralized server has not happened till now. 
that's pretty strong statement because it has not changed when uh, I took up this as a project. Uh, what came out as a surprise is that none of the banks were ready to share the information on this centralized network. So that is exactly where the blockchain came into, you know, as a as particular use case for a documentary fraud detection, where uh, the very first submission from MIT was a product called XD fraud. Uh, again, any uh, individual or an organization they are trying to defraud a financial institution. We actually create an anti-defraud solution that talks about if you are able to give a couple of parameters that we could encrypt and put on a blockchain consortium, it was possible to raise a flag if this particular wearer receipt or invoice was already financed by a second by an early financial institution. So this is typically a fraud prevention technology, what mm -hmm. was what came out of the first product from product innovation labs, uh, then is a detection because detection would happen only after fraud is committed. Whereas we were weird and saying that we will stop the fraud provided you are open to share some information, which we can guarantee it's encrypted on a blockchain platform and uh, your competition would never know your financial financing terms. So we had a lot of ticks there, which would say, we spoke to a couple of banks, they said it's interesting topic. In fact, if you look at project Ubin now, phase one, phase two, so a couple of things have already been done uh, after we thought about this in 2016. So that's an interesting part how uh, MIT itself, uh, one of this takeaway from MIT became the first product of Cardas Innovation Labs. Wow. So that's the perfect example of how to take a course and then Correct. take the good outputs or um, inputs from that particular course, look for the right use case, and actually build a startup of, on top of it. So maybe this can be a good template for other future um, entrepreneurs to look at it that how they can get benefited from these kind of um, opportunities as well as courses. Um, so journey of any entrepreneur is not easy. You build your first product and once the product is ready or at least uh, the MVP is ready and you are out there in the market showcasing it, what more challenges you faced and how that uh, changed the product in its more mature form? Sure, that's interesting, right? I can take the same XD fraud example. That the, the technology was far superior, uh, was able to you know, actually you know, prevent fraud. We spoke to multiple banks. But all the banks said, fantastic, it's needed for the last couple of decades. Nobody has built it. But again, it's easier said than done that, okay, we go to a big bank, they say, perfect, okay, you want it. The moment you step out of the meeting room, there starts the, all the you know, pushbacks. The pushback for us, what happened? I can share because it happened to us really. So the first thing banks said, fantastic. Where is your cybersecurity clearance? I said, what is that? Because banks, <laughs> you know, when they put some data on an external network or in a DMZ at least, demilitarized zone, Right. So you're not in their network because they, obviously there are security threats out there. But I cannot, if somebody, it's, it's like saying that, uh, can I sit in a house, right? You're welcome in the living room, but not in the bedroom, right? So something like that. So it's not a, mm -hmm. banks are always wary about, okay, you can you can come to DMZ zone, which is my living room, but I will not, unfortunately, allow you to come to your bedroom because that's my firewall protected office. I said, that's fair enough. The second thing is that, are you MA certified? Uh, I said, no, we are not. We are just a startup. Just wrote this code. I'm sure I wrote the first version of the code. So I was telling them, you know, what is the, that uh, was happening? So all these things uh, started coming up. 
So what happened, the pushback came to us when we looked at the cybersecurity clearance, uh, MA sandbox requirement for six to nine months, uh, where we scramble the data, talk to the banks, at least six to 10, because the technology would itself not be useful if we don't have more people in the consortium. Because mm-hmm. if we have invoice coming from, or where is receipt coming from bank one, I have to, we have to, you know, again encrypt it, put on a consortium blockchain, hoping that the same invoice or where is receipt goes to bank B, who are also in the consortium. But if it were to go to a bank C, which is not part of a consortium, there's no way we could actually, you know, uh, them it, unless yeah. they do a lookup on our network and say whether it's there or not, right? We also build that channel, of, of course. So came back, then we summed up, summed up all this thing, came up $2 million, USD. Okay, so cost for cybersecurity clearance, cost for sandbox. Now make sure that it's, uh, you know, hacker proof uh, because we're looking at confidential data from a banking system. So that is where the reality of a startup comes in where you get pushback saying that, okay. Now, the moment you talk about bank, you're talk- talking about millions of dollars in capital before it, it can go live or come to a MVP level. So we were at MVP level, but then the reality is that if you don't have that much capital, it's not going, it's going to be tough. Although the, one of the best outcomes if we were able to complete that, but that the banks were ready to pay very decent licensing fee for this platform. The second thing, interesting thing that came out, again, very you know, good to share, right? So let's say that we have prevented a fraud of 1 million invoice or receipt. The banks were also ready to pay certain basis points. Mm-hmm. Two things we could solve. One is the loss, we prevented loss. The second thing is the branding of the particular bank, for example, or financial institution. We don't, the banks do not want to publicly go and say, okay, I have, we, are, we have an exposure of 1 million of fraud and some invoice which you have crossed. But because we were able to prevent that, they were able to pay them. So opportunities are enormous. Even now, I think there's a good opportunity out there. The project we've been one and two have solved it partially with cross-border you know, the trade that happened, trade finance between Singapore and Hong Kong. But again, the whole world, we are talking about 13.8 to 14 trillion opportunity in trade finance alone. Uh, trillion, not billion, I'm talking. So it's a huge uh, trillions of funds move on a trade finance platform. And the kind of exposure, fraud exposure that it has, Again, I said that I'm not saying that 25% uh, is actually in a fraud, but fraud exposure is close to 25% of this 14 trillion we're talking about. That's a huge market out there. Again, it requires regulatory clearance. You have need to have all the national streets coming in. That was a pushback what we had initially. And I'll talk about how we pivoted a bit, uh, sustains. Again, I was, talking I was coming to years. that only. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I know that um, uh, over the time, the, um, yeah. one of your customers is the meat producers and, and uh, uh, meat sellers who have adopted this yeah. solution as well. So yeah. on one side, we're talking about trade finance, banking, you're going and talking to banks as a startup. Yeah. And then one of your product uh, adoptions happened in a, um, in a meat industry uh, where they have used this particular solution. And that became one of your strong success stories as well. So um, I would I would like you to I'll, just sure I'll talk about that. that. So yeah, as a continuation of what happened to XD fraud. So what we had to really pivot is that again, as I said, there are at least hundred use cases for blockchain. We didn't want to go to the cryptocurrency route. We had so many requirements for ICO advisory. I didn't do that. 
again, I have to respect uh, our professor, Alex Pentland. They said, use technology for solving customer pain points than trying to put it in a cryptocurrency or kind of ICOs. That was a big takeaway. Mm -hmm. uh, so we went to supply chain, especially in the food supply chain, where we looked at the kind of fraud that happens. There are multiple instances, you mad cow disease that happened in UK, uh, sorry, in US, and you have uh, you know, the horse meat scandal in UK that people are actually thinking it's beef and you're trying to eat horse meat. We had a lot of scandals in China also on the milk powder, the infant mm -hmm. uh, milk powder, right? One of the things that came out very clearly is that in terms of your adulteration or contamination of food, itself is a 1.2 trillion market size in the world, mm -hmm. which is very, very huge. Southeast Asia, we're looking at uh, people really worried about what comes from other parts of the world because a lot of import happens, but they have no idea where it comes from, what they're eating, and you know how it is introduced in the transit. The supply chain itself is in silos, even now, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll come back to that. So when you look at the, uh, the project we did, it's inter pretty interesting. So we met the founder of this company. He was in Singapore at Microsoft Singapore office. Again, uh, we spoke about our uh, initial things, what we did on provenance are off label. But again, it took them six months to call us. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why I said people do recollect our branding you know, six to nine months and say, okay, Kratos. Okay, fine, let's talk to Kratos again. They called us. So I met them in November in 2017. And I got a call in May. Uh, and incidentally, I was in LA at that time. No, it's just a coincidence, right? It's never planned. I got a call from Microsoft Singapore. I said, where are you? I said, I'm in LA. They said, okay, you have this customer in South Texas. Who do you want to go and talk to? So we went there. What is happening uh, for our, at least for the ranches in Texas? The interesting part of the ranch in Texas or South Texas is that they're all family-owned. Mm -hmm. Today in US, 86% of all the ranches are family-owned. Sixth, eighth generation we're talking. They are very proud of their the, the own legacy, the way they treat the animals, the way they're coming. But what happened in parallel is that we had, they had so much of imports of beef coming in from Brazil, from China, some of them from other parts of India are where we're coming in, where they exported. What is happening is that the quality of beef itself was coming down, whereas the cost also came down, which means the American uh, legacy and the ranches were unable to compete mm -hmm. with, with their imports coming in. What we went on to create a solution for them is to, they're all organic, uh, again, meat producers, but there is no way to prove that they're organic to the person who is walking into HEB Plus or a Walmart, for example. So what we created, okay, now putting on a traceability system on a central server, which was not solving, because that could be tampered by any of the stakeholders in, this, in, this, in the supply chain. So we're talking about a breeder, talking about a feeder, where you have about here, and you have uh, now supply chain. There are six to seven stakeholders coming in system. So we created RFID solution. We put an RFID ear tax on, on the cattle ear. We started tracking the hydration levels. Again, the law is simple. The more the animals are hydrated, the lesser they fall sick. So we went to that basic uh, knowledge thing and we mentioned we enabled an RFID solution along with blockchain. Entire solution was built in six to eight weeks. I don't know with the, with the phase one. We, we flew to Texas, me and some of my team members, sat with them, 
made sure that their thing was put on a blockchain platform. One of the best things that happened, the customer, what, what we worked on. So there was also a company based in San Antonio. They were giving the solutions to multiple ranches uh, in Texas. First thing is, because of blockchain, the evaluation went up because the solution we built, which we are proud of. Right? At least they went up four to five X within that three, min three months period where we were able to handhold them. The second thing that best thing that happened to the consumer is that uh, we enabled the consumer to actually verify whether it is organic beef or not. All the way to tracing back to the farmer to somewhere in uh, South Texas to say, these are the animals raised with love, with a lot of good food, good hydration, uh, no antibiotics given to them, no medicines given. Uh, again, what you're eating today is an organic beef. Again, the reason we could tell them because it's all blockchain. Everything was recorded on blockchain in the entire six to seven steps. And we made sure that consumer can trace back what happened to this particular animal. So that is what, that was the biggest takeaway uh, which we did. So we are thankful to Microsoft Singapore. In fact, they referred us to go to Texas and get this. Wow, that's how synergies are created in the ecosystem. Perfect example. Yeah. Okay, so what more use cases you have um, added um, in past few years and uh, how uh, how many different segments you, you currently cater? Today, we are predominantly a food supply chain based uh, focus at the moment, but that's not stopping us to build more use cases again on automotive. Mm -hmm. So a lot of spare parts that you buy today for your cars or your motorbikes, there are of them come as fake. So we have solved this problem for a very big German auto manufacturer way back 2017. Then we moved on. We are again starting uh, for pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So there's biggest problems. Your medicines also get counterfeited. Right? Most of the medicines, if they are expensive, uh, they get counterfeited and enter the markets. We are working on that as well as next one. Again, you leave it on if you buy outside a Louis Vuitton showroom, it, you're not sure if it's original or not. But there is also huge counterfeiting that happens uh, in this sector. So we are trying to solve it. But today, the food supply chain itself is, is one of the biggest uh, key takeaways from our last four year journey. Mm -hmm. So what we have done is we built a platform called Food Lens, wherein now we, are, we have made sure that marginal producers are the one who would gain for this uh, on, on this using this technology. Then we also have meat producers, your dairy farm, your aquaculture, your seafood production, anything that we can cater to high quality food to make sure that the consumer, if they're paying 1.5x or 2x for a food product, if they claim to be organic, we can prove that it's organic. If it is salmon coming in from you know Norway, the technology can prove that it's coming from Norway, not artificially you know, done in the US, for example. That is where the key takeaway on food lens that we have done. Uh, and again, I'll, there's also FinTech part of it, I'll talk about it, but food lens is what uh, we won as best social enterprise award for that, for this platform last year from Indian Business School of Business here in Hyderabad, where our lab is. Uh, we're based in Singapore as a sales and marketing company, but most of the technology is built here uh, in, in Hyderabad. So we won here in the Indian subsidiary. That's, uh, that's where we are focusing now. Okay. Uh, now I'm going to um, address the elephant in the room. So COVID has changed a lot of uh, 
equations in past couple of months. Um, a lot of startups are are facing the heat. Uh, they are getting the pressure as well. Um, but on the use cases side, uh, what changes you have seen that COVID has introduced, uh, which can be sorted out uh, using blockchain solutions or a potential new use cases that have come along, or maybe some old uh, old use cases got more priority now. So uh, what changed due, due to COVID? Sure. I mean, that is, we are uh, going to one of the highly unprecedented times of our times. So when I came to Singapore in 2003, SARS was there. So for me, it's at least the second uh, pandemic I'm looking at, you know, mm-hmm. across this, right? And I keep telling my kids also, no, it's not, this is not the end. Every five, 10 years, you're going to have these kind of situations coming in. The people have to, first of all, work on their immunity, self-immunity, right? No point taking medicines or trying to fall sick. But coming to the startup context, right? 96% of startups do not have guarantee they will succeed. And this is a rule, whether it's COVID or non-COVID, it's the case. But what COVID has really brought in, at least in the Crowdus Innovation Labs, where we work together, so there's one more. So we run a residential program where the staff stays with us within a community where we are. Uh, we are taking care. So one of the first things came out is their staff safety in terms of how we make sure that there's social distancing being employed. Mm-hmm. And the second thing, how do we survive? Right? Now, can we now, after four years, uh, we just turned uh, four April in April. There are a couple of things which are good things that happen, but I can definitely tell you from my own experience that if there are, uh, we, we sort of talks about 100 things, your know, 90 things may not be in their favor. Only 10 will be in their favor. Couple of things, one is the capital. Unless you are prudent, or you are revenue sensitive, or revenue positive, there's no way you can you know, survive. Uh, we have been in touch with uh, to raise our next round. That didn't happen. Definitely, you look at uh, and, and we see our investor coming and say, uh, your valuation of because of COVID and just because of 60 days of 70 days of lockdown, we hear uh, we say, okay, now it looks like you are crash crunch. crunch. Uh, can we talk about a 40% of your initial valuation? Uh, 30% of what we spoke last year, December, for example. Right? These are things, shocks you would get. You are prepared for that. Unless now a founder or the founders are strong enough to look at all these shots. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is really possible to motivate the team, first of all, to keep paying their you know, compensation, to make sure that for investment that are planned for uh, product enhancements or backlogs would be possible without a, a strong discipline, financial discipline, I would say. So what we have done in this case is that we actually took up uh, some uh, revenue generating products, at least uh, projects, for example, that paid half of our bills in the last three months. Uh, we rolled out a solution for a smart city project. This is actually not one of our portfolios, to be honest. Right? We have been Foodlands blockchain. One of the things that came out of Foodlands was that we also had an IoT products that we built up around Foodlands mm-hmm. uh, because we also, when you talk about securing a food supply chain, the logistics plays a very, very major role. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that logistics also is covered. So we built an IoT solution. But what we pivoted is that we took that solution and went back to one of our partner in Tatanagar, where Tata's main head of Jamshed Core. So can we now pivot it for a smart trash solution? So we built it, we got paid for that. So I was able to pay some of this. But again, unless you have those kind of connections are ready to pivot a bit 
and keep her head, head high. COVID has been a killer for a lot of startups, but we are probably in the good books of God that, okay, we're we still talking to you. Now, are in the middle of this uh, crisis at the moment? So, so agility and the nimbleness um, of customizing your solution has been the hallmark of uh, Kratos till now uh, to keep finding new segments and, and keep expanding over there as well. So, um, okay. yeah, uh, that's, that's a great takeaway for a lot of our viewers who, who are startups or who, are, who want to step into that space, that you have to be more creative and, and nimble on your, uh, on your feet and think about the solution okay. side. Um, what what do you see? So um, we are coming towards the closure of um, of this episode. Sure. One one main thing which I wanted for um, for users to know more is that uh, where is the future lies? What uh, what are the future use cases of blockchain that you will see or you anticipate may get a lot of attention uh, because of COVID or because of the changed market scenario or the 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 surge in um, the dip of oil uh, pricing that has come in. A lot, of, a lot of fluid things are happening in the market today. How that will translate to future opportunities in the blockchain space and the blockchain sector? I would really touch upon maybe a minute or two on how we actually put a safety net around marginal producers. Mm -hmm. So when I keep using this word, what's marginal producer, is that these are the producers that really don't big chunks of land. If it's a farmer, probably he or she owns an acre of land or a small family-owned uh, business from so many generations. Uh, looking at meat producers or looking at uh, milk producers, right? What is happening is that according to World Bank, about 70% of them do not have access to credit. Mm -hmm. It's very, very important again in the COVID situation today. Is that we, on one hand, we are seeing some of the farmers have the harvest ready. But because the logistics is totally broken down, there's no way they are able to transport. Point one. Second thing is that now they are already getting to the next cycle of uh, you know, harvesting, uh, which means they need money to even to buy seeds and you know fertilizers. Okay, we're talking about some countries. If you look at Indian context, they may need about twenty thousand rupees, which is probably four hundred sing dollars. That's also become tough, right, in these situations. What we built, again, this happened before COVID, but we are trying to see that how fast we could you know, implement it in this scenario, is that within the Foodlands platform, we have also created solutions where we wanted to make the 70% of the marginal producers more of bankable. When it's a bankable, we want to get them access to credit, access to insurance. So the chicken and egg problem that we are trying to solve, right? because these people do not have your know, credit reports, which are actually a requirement for a bank or financial institution to lend. Yeah. So how do we break this? So we again looked at blockchain, which is a tamper-proof data, clean data that comes in. What we created is an alternative credit scores for this mm -hmm. unbankable lower 70% yeah. of, of, the, of the market size. What it means on a simple basis is that we give out an application called Food Lens, free of cost to the farmers. We don't charge farmers or cooperatives. All we tell them, if they have a smartphone, which is again, I'm not expecting a $400-$500 smartphone, the simplest one about $75 or $80, if they can, or they can always take a help of a cooperative assistant to do that for them. What we tell them is when they're doing any tasks in their agriculture, for example, sowing the seeds, putting fertilizers, 
now making sure that they do a soil test. All this task we started recording on a blockchain platform. Mm -hmm. Very simple to use, only three or four data points that they need, multilingual, icon-based, uh, just an hour of training would allow them to do that. What we came out after a couple of pilots we ran, for uh, again, non-perishable goods like turmeric, uh, cashew, almond, and you know, which organic turmeric, for example, which carry really a lot of, lot of price in the market, we told we are in a position to, to make sure that by using the blockchain, uh, blockchain data, along with some of the IoT data. So we, we've combined blockchain data, IoT telemetry data. We started giving this information, uh, feeding our algorithm to say uh, whether they are now can be credited, become bankable. What came out as a surprise when we presented this to one of the biggest banks in Philippines in December before COVID, is that they said it is spot on that now they are opening up this 70% of the market, even in the Philippines, that now they are open to use our technology for micro credit loans. Mm -hmm. They may not give out say $100,000, not ready for that because the data itself is not mature. But they're saying if you are able Two to- to $5,000, yeah. Exactly, 10,000 pesos. 20,000 pesos, for example, which they can make sure they can buy the seeds, good quality seeds. We also build deep neural networks, deep vision, where you can detect a spurious seed, you can detect a pest, for example. Mm -hmm. so what we did is, while we do the tasks, what they can do in agriculture, we are putting a parallel digital twin around their supply chain, around their pre-farm gate or post-farm gate activities. After one or two crops, we make sure that now they're eligible for lending or they're eligible for uh, credit insurance, for example. That has actually reduced a lot of financial stigma and social stigma on these farms. That's the first key takeaway. But second thing that would come out on COVID itself, like the governments that are, that are giving us stimulus packages. Right? If this data can reach, if the funds could reach the farmers or the marginal producers, that would really, really trigger a lot of innovations and that's where exactly blockchain is ready for that in terms mm -hmm. of how do we track the supply chain? How do we track their financial status? How do we track the repayment states? That's very, very important. You give 10,000 pesos, I give them $400 as loan. What is important is are they in a position to repay back? Mm -hmm. uh, is the government giving the conducive buyback programs? So now what we are trying to do within Foodlands is we're trying to bring in the buyers so that they can look at the data and start buying this uh, particular you know, service, produce yeah. for them directly. Mm -hmm. That's what we're trying to do. I hope that answers your question now. Yeah, it does. It does. Well, it has been an enriching um, session. Um, time just flew and we talked about so many things, how the how Kratos <laughs> uh, came to existence, what all problems you solved, what all use cases were prioritized. And from, uh, from a FinTech, you, uh, you um, pivoted a bit and, and currently solve different problems in, in this space as well. So um, all the best for, for future years and uh, um, keep growing, keep, uh, keep expanding on more and more use cases and coming up with more solutions. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us on this session. Thank you.